Psalm 27. I'll read the whole psalm. The Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? To eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes. Sorry, when the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me. O God of my salvation, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word as we've had opportunity to read it and hear it and sing it. And now for it to be explained even more detail, I pray your guidance here uh, to keep my lips from error, to open the ears uh, that we might receive your word, that it would fall on profitable ground and multiply many fold in the hours, weeks, and years to come. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. It was just shy of five years ago that we, Elliot's, uh, moved back here. A uh, few stops along the road, don't need to summarize, but uh, it'll be in May that we've been back in Omaha for five years. And I remember when we first arrived back in 2018 that it was really a sweet thing to see and reconnect with the families that we had been in this congregation with the years prior, before we headed off to Utah and Colorado and Ohio and all of that. The five-year-olds were then mid, become mid-teens, the 10-year-olds were young adults, the 15-year-olds were married, and of course, five more years of water under the road, those teenagers are now adults and married and such, or about to be. So it's exciting to have reconnected with those families at that time, and a blessing to have continued to see uh, God's work in the lives of all of us here. But I remember at that time, uh, reconnecting with uh, you all, a variety of your families, and asking some of the men in particular, as I was encouraged to see these young people growing in the faith, embracing the faith, walking in faith, to ask uh, some of you men, little tips as it were. Uh, my children, relatively young still at that point, and wanting to know how is it that, uh, you know, what can I do, so to speak, to see similar fruit in my own family. Uh, some chuckled in reply, uh, others shrugged their shoulders. One man I very clearly uh, remember 
you're here today. I won't call you out. Maybe you'll remember too. But I very clearly remember your answer. He said, pray. And I was very impacted by that. It may seem like a simple answer. It is. I don't think it's simplistic, but it is simple and very insightful. We live in a society that demands results, uh, often at, at any price. And we will pay and do anything for plans, for routines, for formulas that will produce results. We seek for tools and programs and whatever it takes to get results, whether that be in our work, in our family, our church, our private lives. But I'm convinced more and more that it amounts to a lot of working in the flesh. Not to say that all plans and formulas and programs and routines are fleshly, but it can be. And maybe we're prone to use them in that way. We often fail to heed, and as we, right, uh, plural, myself included in that, fail to heed the warnings of Galatians 3 and Romans 9 and other places about walking in the flesh versus the Spirit. So again, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying toss out all those helps, uh, even helps for prayer. So I'm getting to the point of prayer here as a spiritual discipline. And I'm not advocating the opposite extreme of a pietistic monk life-like life where you sit in the prayer closet and hope that everything turns out okay in the end. Uh, the man who offered me that pointed one-word advice, pray, five years ago, <clears throat> I'm certain was not totally hands-off, uh, not speaking or ministering actively into the lives of his children. So prayer has other things attendant to it. But the question is, how will we engage in walking in the Spirit, parenting in the Spirit, doing our vocations in the Spirit, uh, living out any facet of our callings in the Spirit? Will we use carnal tools or will we use spiritual tools? And one of the key spiritual tools is prayer. So coming to this text today, there's... 14 verses, and there's probably 30 lessons we could learn from this psalm. But I want to focus on one overarching theme, which is to say there's a prayer here, right? David is praying. There's some things before his prayer, I see. There's some verses after that prayer. But as I was looking over this uh, psalm yesterday, uh, I felt the Spirit guiding me uh, to share with you uh, some reflections on preparation for prayer the doing of prayer, and our expectancy after prayer. So keeping it to that simple one word, pray. Or as I try to be slightly clever with a dual meaning in your title, a Christian prays, <clears throat> and how is it that a Christian prays? So this is an example of a Christian's prayer, and a Christian must pray. We so take it for granted, but let us not run past it today. <clears throat> so let us focus a moment here on some details of praying. And let me note, we're not here merely to learn about David, right? It could be interesting to set him up as a uh, pedestal type of Christian in the past. We all know of his huge sins. Uh, but let us recognize him as a saint, right? Someone who's trusting in the Messiah, just as we do. So his faults uh, in different degrees can be our faults. May his strengths be our strengths. So we can come alongside him in that. So to summarize all of this introduction, let us see that prayer is a privilege, right? A privilege as a Christian. Prayer is a privilege of those who truly know the one true God. And even more specifically, it is the process for those who want to be even closer to the one true God. So that's my hope here, is that we will see the great calling and privilege we have to pray and the opportunity it is to grow closer to our Lord. This should challenge us. 
perhaps admonish or chasten us a bit at least, but especially encourage us. Again, that prayer is the privilege and process for knowing the one true God. We'll see this in several ways. With your detailed outline, feel free to follow along with me. So first, prayer arises in the context of humility, Christian humility. Let me read again verses 1 through 6. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me upon a rock, high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. So as I looked at this, what I see this first part of this psalm being David's reflection on the Lord and his own circumstances. He speaks to God in the third person here, whereas in the verses uh, seven and following, the actual prayer, he's addressing God directly in the first person, right? So evidently, uh, he is looking at preparing his heart for this prayer. And it's not known exactly whether he's looking back on a specific incident. Uh, Different English translations and commentators are a bit mixed as to whether it's a specific incident of conflict, of a battle, of an event that he's looking back on, seeing how God worked it out in the end, or if he's just describing in general. And uh, somewhat um, unhelpful, uh, the tenses, as it were, of the Hebrew grammar are not explicit in that. That's not how Hebrew is constructed. So we're left looking for other clues. So I favor the view that he's looking just in general at a life of trouble, a life of difficulties, and how does it work when those difficulties come along? The wicked stumble, right? So he's not identifying a specific incident where there was conflict and this was that specific resolution, but to a general context of evil warring with good, his enemies warring with him, what's the solution? A definitive solution, that the stumble fall, they fell. And so it's not so much a one instance, but a general condition. But how is his heart inclined to this general condition, right? Even those circumstances can make somebody proud, right? Let us not take for granted that is unique here, the Christian grace of humility. Many people come to good circumstances and it puffs them up, right? Or they, as I'll allude to later, they come to hard circumstances and it makes them hard. So the very fact that David, looking back on these good circumstances or describing a general condition of good circumstances, which is to say the end after the hard time, he doesn't puff himself up. He is recognizing that God is good. The Lord is the one who won these battles and will continue to win these battles for him. But even as a, a foundation to that, let us reflect briefly on the, even the attitude and approaching God in prayer. Uh, two verses I quoted for you there in the outlines. Uh, the first from Proverbs 15, 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Do we meditate on that frequently enough? 
to recognize that the people out there, you, know, you hear the news reports after there's some school shooting and say we're offering up wishes and prayers. It's like, uh, you think that your version of your deity is going to listen to that? No. God is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And that is our humble attitude whereby we can approach God. And also in Hebrews 11.6, as I quoted for you, without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So it is insanity for unbelievers to offer those general wishes to some general deity expecting some favor in return. But it is very much right for us as believers to approach God, expectantly looking for what he will do according to his promises, right? That is what the Christian life is. That's the Christian privilege. It's the Christian relationship, as we'll get to. There definitely have been times where I've faced peril, and I've thought, okay, step back a moment. You know, solid ground physically, remind myself of the solid ground of being in God, remind myself that I don't need to be afraid, remind myself that God is in control, even when these people or these circumstances are against me. So that's what I see here uh, in these preparatory verses, one through six, a sort of mental and heart reset where David is stating his, the truth, what he knows about God, right? He's reminding himself who God is that he's then going to pour out his heart to in prayer momentarily. And notice again that I summarize this section as prayer arises in the context of humility. Uh, it might be more obvious to say that prayer arises in the context of trial or of persecution, since David refers to those difficult times or a difficult set of times in verses one through three. But let me emphasize again that circumstances don't determine our response. So there's really three reasons why I wanted to uh, emphasize humility in this section. The first, referred to already, we aren't certain the exact historical context. Is it really a circumstance of trial when he wrote this? Maybe not. So not knowing that for certain, I wanted to be more general and reflect on his attitude, his response. And second, related to that, um, actually, let me skip that little grammatical point. Uh, the third uh, reason for going to uh, the point about humility, which is David's response, is to emphasize again that the things we see, the things we experience, do not determine who we are, our response to it, or what we will be tomorrow. We must think larger than that, right? Not be uh, uh, creatures of our environment, but be creatures of the Holy Spirit living in us. Uh, in my work, I very frequently deal with people, work in healthcare, uh, people in the midst of health trials, and also financial trials that attend to those health trials. And I had occasion a couple weeks ago, it was almost, it was back-to-back -back calls, uh, that were almost identical, and the response of each person to that situation was polar opposites. And at the second, the, the sort of pleasant, mild-mannered guy was first, the irritated, disappointed in my answer guy was second, and I actually said to the second guy, that's the second call in a row, this exact question, let me help you similar as I helped the previous guy, hoping for a similar result, right? And he was, still wasn't pleased, and I, I kind of wanted to say, the difference here is not our policies, the difference is your attitude. I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> let him figure that over time, because uh, sometimes, as I've learned in ministry, you can't tell people that. Uh, you've got to wait for God to tell them that. 
But all that to say, again, our response to circumstances is the key thing. And walking by grace, walking in the Spirit, is what we see David doing here in the midst of these circumstances. So now we're at part B. A humble heart meets God in prayer no matter the circumstances. And let me draw this out for you a little bit in the text as I put those bullet points there, right? We see evidence of David appropriating God's grace either in the midst of the specific trial or through a whole life of trials. In verse 2, he calls out the Lord as his light and salvation, right? It could have been easy to say, you know, my armies provided me light, right? All those weapons that came along me, they're what saved me. No, that's not what he sees. He gives credit to the Lord as his light and salvation. The Lord is his strength. Implied from that is the fact that it's God's strength that brought the victories. Uh, His desire is for the Lord, verse 4. He wants to seek the Lord also in verse 4. He longs to behold behold the Lord's beauty, which is to say, give God the glory. Also verse 4, and at the end of verse 4, he aspires to know the Lord better. All of those clauses, all of those words are statements of faith. Lord, you are the one working here for my good and for your glory among the peoples and in my life. This is a humble man giving God credit, not thinking that he's accomplished a good thing on his own. So all that to say, again, focusing on verses 1 through 6, as preparation for prayer. What is the Christian's heart as we even think of coming to God, much less than actually verbalize our thoughts and heart expressions to him? So coming to verses 7 through 12, um, the prayer itself, so to speak. So let's hear what it is that David says to God and how this reflects really two things, uh, God's character and his ways, and then a little bit later we'll look at what it says about David's thoughts about God. Reading again verse 7 through 12. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me. O God of my salvation, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. So again, previous part. Third person referring to God in that way, preparing himself for prayer. Here we see him addressing God directly. But what I want to especially focus on now is that here he prays, talking to God in his word choice and expressions of his thoughts, we see a lot about who he believes God to be, right? That's what a statement of faith is. What do I believe about God? What do I understand about God? So the words of his prayer give us an insight into how David views God. And thankfully, (laughs) because it's consistent, we see that his prayer to God backs up his previous statements about God. And in our own personal lives, uh, the brief point of application here. Think, if I believe God is strong, I'm going to pray to God asking for his strength. 
Uh, if I think he's good, I'm going to pray according to his goodness. If I, can think he, if I think he's going to save or can save, I will pray to him as a savior. And that's why I referred to earlier the well-wishers of the news reports. A Buddhist is not going to pray like a Christian because they don't have a good and sovereign, etc. God to pray to. So our pr- concepts about God will make a difference in how we pray. So whether it's Hindus or Muslims or Mormons, they don't have the same God, and they're not going to pray the same. They might sometimes use the same words, and speaking in generalities might sound similar, um, but it's not going to be the same prayer because they don't have the same God. Or I should say, it shouldn't be the same prayer. Uh, Our prayers should be different, and maybe we should be more conscious in doing that. But all that to say, Christian prayer is different from other prayer, It is unique because our God is not like the false gods of other religions. So what do we see here in David's prayer that reveal his understanding of the character and the being and the works of God? Let me just draw out a few very quickly. Uh, Verse 7, he says, the Lord hears, meaning he's alive, right? He's not a deaf and dumb idol. It's a recurring... um, point of criticism brought forth, especially in the Old Testament, you know, who are your gods, O world? They can't even hear, right? They fall off their pedestals. You got to pick them back up. But no, the Lord is able to hear. He is the living God. Uh, Also in verse 7, he is merciful, right? This explains that he extends grace, right? Uh, What kind of grace can a, a hard, cold deity extend? It's just exacting justice. And even in Islam, it's that consistency of judicial character that they appeal to, which is a bit frightful. They don't have mercy. Uh, Continuing on in verse uh, 8, he initiates relationship with us. You see David replying to that invitation. That's a covenant-keeping God, covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Uh, Verse 9, he's made himself known. He's not hidden. You can think of the incarnation in which he condescends to be with us. That is a God who is with his people. Uh, Further in verse 9, he comes alongside us. Uh, Verse 9, he saves. Verse 10, he is eternal, not bounded by physical space. Uh, Verse 11, he's a protective leader. Verse 12, yes, he is just. So all of these words of David indicate what David believes about his God. Some religions are built on the idea that God is afar off or that we save ourselves or that God is being being essentially like us that may be changed over time, and their prayers fall in line with that to some degree. Those devotees' prayers are not, will not, should not sound like David's. They shouldn't sound like our prayers. And I say they shouldn't. Sometimes maybe they get attuned to our language, or they're listening to enough Christian radio that they start to sound like us, but we shouldn't sound like them, right? We have a unique God, the only God, the one true and living God. And this isn't just a point uh, from this psalm specifically. I pointed out a few scriptures in your outline there, too, from Matthew that give us examples of Jesus's prayers. Obviously, we know Jesus never made any mistakes in his prayer. There was no sin ever in his prayer. So if there's aspects of his prayers, we know they are good and right. And thankfully, the consistency of Scripture, the inspiration of David as a prophet, we understand that it is consistent. David did correctly identify uh, the character of God. And let me read then briefly uh, from Matthew uh, Four, just the Lord's Prayer, so you're familiar with this, but just see how it is that Jesus prays 
and what that tells us about how Jesus understands the character of God the Father. So this is his suggested prayer, how his disciples should model their prayers. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So maybe a little quiz to run through uh, with your children later. Pick out some attributes of God that are indicated in that prayer, right? Uh, We see that he forgives sins. Jesus refers to him as a father. That's a familiar, loving relationship. And there's three or four others you could probably pick out too. So no Muslim or Buddhist is going to pray like that, right? They don't have a merciful God. They don't have a father God. We do. Doctrine matters. Our concept of God matters, and it should have an impact on our prayers. Another example, um, it's longer, so I won't read it. I'll just refer to it, as I put in your outline there in Matthew 26, his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. There we learn of that deep inter-Trinitarian love of submission one to another, especially of the Son to the Father. And you can pick out other details in your study later. So these two prayers taken together, set alongside David's and all the other prayers we might come across in the Bible, teach us about the character of God, the one to whom we pray, right? the one to whom we make our supplications and desire to have some answer. And what we think of God absolutely impacts what we will think about God, say to God, and expect from God. God. So to summarize again, the second point, only those who know God can actually pray true prayers because our prayers are a statement of our faith. All other gods are deaf and dumb and ultimately powerless. Their followers have powerless prayers, right? We have a powerful God. Our prayers should embrace his power and not be vain repetitions. Now we come to the third point. As I've titled it there, prayer is an expression of who we are in relation to God. So I hope you see the two sides of the coin here, right? Our prayers express what we think about God. They also express what we think about ourselves in relation to him. And these are parallel points in the same verses. I won't read 7 through 12 again. And there's some overlap with the first point I made, uh, points we learn from David's preparation for his prayer. If David thought he was independent or self-made or autonomous, he would not have, in these preparatory verses, thought of approaching God in this way. And if he was thinking he was independent, self-made, or autonomous, he certainly wouldn't have stated his prayer to God in the ways that he does. So both in preparing for prayer and in his exact wording of his prayer, we see that he is not independent, self-made, autonomous. Rather, we see that he's humble, as I emphasized in our first point, but also now I want to emphasize that he is confident and bold. But briefly to repeat, we don't set aside our humility of the preparation phase when we come to the actual prayer phase, right? So the actual prayer phase shows the humility and the confidence and boldness, having already emphasized the humility. We'll move to the confidence and boldness. So how in this prayer do we see humility, confidence, and boldness? Well, teach me envelops all three of those. It takes humility, 
and boldness to ask somebody to teach you, right? You're asking for some of their time, some of their energy, uh, but you're also confessing that you're a student, that you're a learner, that you don't know it all. By necessity, a student submits to the teacher who is wiser, more, acknowledge, more knowledgeable, more experienced, more skilled. Next little phrase, lead me, also in verse 11. In saying, that he admits this, in saying this, he admits that he doesn't know which way to go, but he's appealing to God to lead him, to extend, expend that energy and that effort to lead him in the way he should go. Similar for here, he's confessing, I, I need you to open my ears. Please speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And then extend to me mercy. That is a bold request. Do we deserve mercy? No. Nothing in us requires God to extend mercy. Nothing in David required God to extend mercy to him. So that is a bold request. But we reminded, put it in your outlines there, Ephesians 3.12, in Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. In and of ourselves, we certainly have no standing before God. Our best works are as filthy rags. Even after regeneration, our works are tainted by sin and far from perfect. So God is never looking at what we did and saying, oh, that's good, that meets the measure, you can come into my heaven. Absolutely not. It's only ever in Christ that our works are good because Christ is good, right? He satisfies the Father. So in Christ, we can access the throne room of God, the Father, and plead our cause with Christ as our mediator. In Christ, we confidently, boldly, and humbly come to him seeking what we need. And to emphasize at this point, it is through faith. Uh, that verse I read earlier uh, from Hebrews 11 emphasizes the point that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So it bears repeating, Jesus Christ is the one who pleases the Father. We can't. So by faith we stand before him with Christ's righteousness in our stead, with Christ having borne our guilt, with Christ as our advocate, as our mediator. And some people talk, and you'll meet this out on the street, in your families, uh, perhaps in your youth, some people talk as if they can pull a faith card out of their pocket. It's like a pass to get them on the train, right? Uh, if you've ever been in the city, you gotta take your subway card and run it through the machine and it lets you through the gate. Uh, those are just pretty pieces of paper, right? They might work for the subway machine, but that doesn't satisfy God. Instead, we need to look at our faith like the check, right? It's just a piece of paper, but for the signature, but for the account that it's connected to. Uh, the checkbook itself is worthless except for that which is behind it, what it connects to. The real value of those checks is the fact that they draw upon the riches that are stored in the bank account. Christ's merits are stored in our bank account. Faith is that checkbook that, as it were, draws upon those funds. So to repeat it very clearly, emphasize it here, it is in Christ through faith that we have boldness and access with confidence, as Paul words it there in Ephesians. Well, like I made the point in section two of seeing evidence for how David conceives of God, evidence in this prayer of how he conceives of God, it's not just David, it's not just this psalm, but it's consistent throughout the scriptures. 
and it's consistent in Jesus' prayers. So we saw before, Jesus in his prayers gives evidence of what he thinks of God the Father, but also in other prayers, we can see what it is that Jesus thinks about himself uh, and how it is that a prayer, one who prays, uh, should come in prayer and express himself in prayer. Of course, it's going to be different. Jesus didn't need a savior. <laughs> he was sinless. Uh, he didn't need mercy like we do. Uh, he didn't have flawed obedience to be atoned for. But turn with me to John chapter 17. I'm not going to read all of it. It's actually the longest prayer in the New Testament. This is what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer. And I do encourage you to read it at length later, read it a couple times. Um, With the idea in mind, what does this reveal about how Jesus sees himself, as well as the earlier theme about how he sees his Father? But to see how he speaks to them, you probably already see where I'm going. Do you think we're going to find evidence of Jesus' humility? Yes. Are we going to see evidence of Jesus' confidence and boldness? Yes, indeed we do. So first few, which I didn't set off in your outlines because it would have bumped the whole thing to the next page. But these bullet points are divided into two sections. The first being evidence of his humility. Note in verse 1, he addresses his father. That's a title which speaks of deference and respect. Verse 2. Uh, The Father is the giver of authority. Jesus is recognizing that that authority rests with the Father to do with as he pleases. Uh, In verse 3, the Father is preeminent uh, as to who is known unto saving life. Father comes first. Jesus is being humble and acknowledging that. Verse 4, the Father is first to be glorified. Right On and on. And I encourage you to make a list in your spare time this coming week. How do we see Jesus being humble in his attitude towards God the Father in this prayer? That's just four. And then his boldness. Uh, verse five, he asked for himself to be glorified. Is that not bold? Is that not confident in his own inherent righteousness and his equality with God the Father? Absolutely. Uh, for eternal life to be given to all whom it was promised. That is a bold prayer. Uh, and then in verse 20, we see that intertrinitarian like oneness that he prays for, and on and on uh, throughout this. So Jesus was humble. And he was confident and bold in this prayer. He confidently addressed his father because he knew who he was in relation to him, the only begotten son, right, in whom the father was well pleased. He had every reason to come boldly and with confidence. And so David's prayer is the same, and our prayers can and should be is the main lesson here. Well, now we come to uh, the Psalm's conclusion, which will be a bit before my conclusion, uh, verses 13 and 14. In the closing verses here, we see what I'll title the result of prayer. Um, Either hopeful endurance or expectant patience, uh, choose your phrase. But here, verses 13 and 14. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. 
Here I see David confessing that the natural response, right, not having grace, being left to our own devices, as some people say, is to lose heart. That's what would have happened to him. He recognizes, if not for God, I would have lost heart. Yet by faith, that's not what happened. By faith, he had hope. What I mentioned a moment ago, hopeful endurance or expectant patience. In verse 13, we see this. As he words it, he's looking for temporal, not only future uh, action, uh, redemption. He says, in the land of the living. So it's a hope that's not only in eternity. Though that is part of it, he's not negating that. But here, the emphasis is on his temporal hope, that he will see God act in the land of the living. With that hope, the Christian can endure, which is to say, wait, wait on the Lord. To wait, uh, to look eagerly for, uh, to lie and wait for. Uh, Think of a gal who's got a pen pal, who's expecting the next letter, right? So you're looking out the window to the street, waiting for the postal carrier truck to come up, and then jumping out the door to see if the letter has come. And you can fill in your 21st century analogy to that, maybe checking Facebook every five minutes, right? Or maybe even more frequently. Um, That's the expectancy, wondering, has it come? Has he acted yet? Has God answered my prayer? Or, to speak to about a third of the congregation now, the parents waiting for a baby. They don't call it expecting for nothing, right? You're eagerly looking forward. When will the baby come? Soon, Lord, soon. That is patient anticipation, waiting on the Lord. We can be patient and hopeful, enduring this patiently, because it doesn't rest on us. Who does it rest on? The Lord. Is he going to do what he says he's going to do? He will. He is faithful. Not in our own timing, because we're not God, but in his timing. So we can wait on the Lord. So with David's conclusion, uh, let me conclude uh, by summarizing uh, these brief points and perhaps make a few um, passing applications. So again, The key overall point, and this is what, if I was in the habit of doing it at the very end, I would word as my charge. I tend to just put it in the outline here and say it in the body of the sermon. But the key point, the charge to you, is to remember and to act upon the fact that prayer is the privilege of those who truly know the one true God, and prayer is the process of those who want to be closer to the one true God. So remember that prayer reveals both who we, I, you, as the prayer, think God to be, as well as who we think ourselves to be. So, by way of application, seek to learn who God is, and then we can pray accordingly, right? Do we want to have more Christian prayers? Do we want to have more powerful prayers? Let's meditate on who God is. A couple weeks ago, Catechism question, who is God? God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Meditate on that and pray on that. And I guarantee you, our prayers will be more Christian, have more power, give us more peace and joy. Be humble about yourself would be the second thing, right? It's so easy to... After a couple good days, I think we really got it going. (laughs) After some bad days, to get really in despair. So let's find that Christian balance of seeing us not, seeing ourselves, not according to our circumstances, but according to our identity in Christ. 
our being as humans made in God's image and redeemed by his grace. So it takes honesty, which connects to the humility I was uh, dwelling on earlier, as well as that confidence. So for the honest part, and just speaking here to folks who need to hear the gospel and embrace it day by day, if you think you're a pretty good person, not as bad as the other guy, uh, so certainly God's going to hear my prayers, right? Why wouldn't he? I'm not as bad as that other guy. If you haven't humbled yourself before him and repented of your sins, you need to trust in God alone for salvation. You're deceiving yourself. God has no requirement to hear the prayers of a sinner. In fact, it's an abomination to him. So we can't come with any expected boldness or confidence if we haven't humbled ourselves before the one true and living God in the person of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the key thing for humility. And then it's a daily practice of humility as we've been redeemed, as we're growing in Christ. And on top of that, then with that Christian humility, we can build the confidence part. If you have repented, having uh, clung to Christ alone for salvation, we can know that the Father receives us as a dear child, right? Scripture teaches us, does an earthly father give a stone when a child asks for bread? No. Every father desires to give good gifts to his children. So we can ask our Father in heaven for these good gifts, knowing that he has good plans for us. So that is the humble step and the confidence step. And then lastly, uh, about the hopeful patience. Friends, we do live in an age that expects rapid gratification. Text messages are sent instantly. I can signal message with a missionary friend of ours in Myanmar. We're not sending you know, a chest full of gold coins on the ocean for a month to get there. I can know immediately when I've... Uh, what's the financial transfer thing we're using? like Venmo. Anyway, it gets there like now, in five minutes. It's in his bank account. So we are so uh, spoiled by the immediacy of digital communication uh, that we uh, don't have to cultivate the patience like our brothers and sisters of old did to, uh, did in, in ages past. Um, you know, the Duffs can return from a thousand miles away in a few hours. It's as if they were never gone. So we need to, in other ways, cultivate this patience and this endurance. So we're taught here to wait. God's answers don't always come immediately, as fast as a text message from our friend. But he does answer. He will answer according to his good timing. So to finish with the phrase that David, in the inspiration of Holy Scripture, wait, I say, on the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that speaks to us from generations past, uh, but speaks to us with the same power. Uh, nothing is lost over time. Uh, there's no failure of fidelity in your word. And so, Lord, please work in us that our hearts would be receptive to it, that we would really learn and grow from it. And in learning about you, uh, and learning about ourselves in light of you and your word, that we would pray accordingly. Lord, give us humility. Give us boldness and confidence to know you, to know ourselves, and to look for what you're doing in our lives today, tomorrow, and on into the future. I pray for your people here in Jesus' name. Amen.